You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Well, there we have it, ladies and gents. Can you believe that the world's most powerful position is now being held by one of the most dominant real estate investors of our time. Donald J. Trump is in the White House and the race is on to trace the loopholes that are going to flow from that particular arrangement and what sort of conflict of interest he is going to have with uh, dozens of golf courses, hotels, you name it, he's in on it. He's handballed it to his uh, kids to to run the business, but with uh, four of them on his transitions team, who knows just how many conflicts there are going to be uh, when it comes to uh, the Trump empire and the fact that uh, he's supposedly the leader of the new world, but so many of those business dealings are in places uh, where the United States has important economic and national security concerns. You just think about uh, Turkey, Indonesia, the UAE, and even Azerbaijan, where uh, Trump has uh, uh, licensed out his name for $2.5 million and then is claiming $350,000 a year in management fees for a uh, property that is not even open yet. It is... Uh, entirely vacant with the uh, collapse of the Azerbaijan um, economy, so heavily reliant on the oil game, uh, meaning that uh, they've basically mothballed it, but uh, Trump is still claiming his uh, his monopoly rights, and that is what's just going to be so harrowing for us to keep an eye on, is uh, some of the tricks of the trade that uh, the Trumpster is going to push through to uh, keep his insiders happy. And whilst we're seeing more and more um, far-right uh, selections, uh, Bannon's going to be his chief of staff who uh, seems like uh, some sort of neo-Nazi type. Uh, it's going to be the, the cabinet naming and the, the treasury secretary and who's going to get that dominant role and what ideology they're from that will be of great interest to uh, any renegade economist out there so yeah the the number of court cases he has uh, coming up is also of concern the new york times is reporting that uh, some of the classic uh, situations where he he is going to um, face these conflicts of interest including uh, his role appointing all five members of the, of the national labor relations board and over the past year, Trump International Hotel Las Vegas has been in a battle with the Culinary Workers Union. And Trump's been uh, he's losing that battle in the courts. But is he going to lean on his position of power to ensure that his business gets uh, favorable findings? So those sort of issues are going to be of great interest to see play out, uh, particularly when he's criticized uh, Janet Yellen and the Federal Reserve as being a political organization. And he here he is going to be with uh, one hand representing the, the Trump business brand 
and on the other side, uh, supposedly uh, working for the American people. It's uh, <laughs> it's certainly going to be very interesting. Um, reading uh, housebolo.com, an Indian real estate website, they're uh, very excited now that uh, uh, Trump has been courting activities in Bangalore, Goa and Hyderabad amongst uh, many other cities, is looking to have uh, India as the company's largest revenue generator after the USA. So there's five ongoing deals there with a gross development value of about $1.5 billion dollars. Three more projects are likely to be launched in 2017. So uh, his role as uh, a leader of the ultra-luxury housing segment, uh, uh, these projects are already being sold at a premium of 35 to 60% above uh, the rate of similar projects in the same area just due to the power of his branding. So the Trump brand, of course, is going to skyrocket in terms of value and it's going to be very interesting to see just how many real estate sharks are going to uh, grab onto those coattails and roll with it. But in the meantime, the uh, the rate of home ownership in the U.S. is down at record lows. Uh, uh, they're estimating that next year it could be down to 62.5%, which will mean uh, for those in the real estate industry, there'll be 1 million new renter households to uh, provide services to using their rental-backed mortgage securities, the new form of derivative that's corporatizing now the rental market. Uh, we're going to see uh, probably um, new frontiers of development there in that uh, it's good for more capital, uh, more co- con- consolidated capital to invest in uh, the rental market to lift the quality of services provided. But as we've investigated many times in the past on the show, uh, uh, that's certainly uh, not always the case. Now, one of the interesting court cases Trump has is that the Trump University is uh, a defunct for-profit real estate school that uh, some former students uh, have accused of, uh, of being fraudulent. And so there are three civil cases filed against uh, his controversial education business venture report, CNN. And uh, th- these sort of reputational issues are going to continue to come through, but uh, you can just imagine how he's going to shrug that one off. Don't be frustrated. Why shouldn't I be? What's wrong? Nothing. One of the best articles I've found about Trump uh, was in American Prospect, longformprospect.org. Find the link in uh, this week's show notes. Make sure you check out last week's show notes. Put in heaps of work for that for anyone interested in the eight unexpected outcomes of Georgia's economics. Well, this article really slams at Trump's riches and the real estate tax racket. The journalist Justin Miller goes through all of the elaborate tax write-offs that are possible. And, uh, of course, the number one trick is to push down the value of the property assessment, the land valuation that your property taxes are charged on. So, of course, uh, that's something that Trump's been an absolute master of. Trump's given himself a 97% cut for a valuation on a property in Clubhouse uh, at the Westchester County. 
a pristine 18 hole golf course. So uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things uh, Trump's been good at is uh, fighting on his property assessments. Uh, just like uh, Frank Lowy and Sons uh, are vigilantes when it comes to land valuations, they are uh, serial court offenders, always taking local councils to court, threatening them with huge delays, huge legal costs if they get a property valuation that is not to their liking. Just shocking. So... Uh, Miller writes, the Declaration of Independence may tell us that all men are created equal, but the government definitely favours us real estate investors, boasts the Trump University book entitled Commercial Real Estate Investing 101. And the New York Times found that Trump's used his political connections to secure nearly $900 million in tax breaks, grants and subsidies to build up his real estate empire in New York City. Over in Chicago, to build his 92-story Trump Tower, he hired no less than Ed Burke, the head of the Chicago City Council, as his attorney. Of course, he used his lobbyocracy skills to have uh, different property assessments for uh, different uh, floors of, of the Trump Tower and to get the ground floor assessment level lowered by 70% in just four years. This reduced uh, Trump's property tax bill by just over $14 million, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. In 2005, the Wall Street Journal uncovered that Trump won nearly a $40 million federal income tax deduction simply by pledging not to build houses on one of his New Jersey golf courses, taking advantage of tax laws that allows property owners to impose permanent conservation measures in exchange for charitable tax deductions. He's done this, of course, in a spate of other um, investment sites uh, to uh, right down to doing uh, just what we report on here in Australia where uh, uh, groups put uh, cows or bees on their properties and, and claim them as agricultural land use. Well, Trump uses goats and hay production on his golf courses to avoid paying property taxes. So uh, <clears throat> the big issue here is uh, that the, um, the corporate structures that are used and in America... Trump, uh, like so many real estate professionals, uses limited liability corporations. And here, under this structure, the government only taxes once. The usual corporate structure would see taxes on the company's profits and then on all employees' incomes. But with uh, limited liability corporations, they pass through all profits to the owners as income to be taxed once. And so Trump has at least 240 of these limited liability corporations, including the flagship Trump Organization. Now, the big one that we often hint about here is uh, depreciation. And elaborate depreciation rates are spread over years and years of property ownership. Uh, some 39 years you can depreciate property uh, in the commercial uh, sector in America. So uh, on a $150 million purchase uh, of the National Doral Miami Golf Resort, over 39 years, he's able to deduct about $3.85 million a year in depreciation, even though the property has gone up in value, even though his own money backs just 17% of the property value. 
And that's uh, one of the big issues is that the system is encouraging uh, developers to go into debt. They can write off that interest charge on the debt and then they can add depreciation to uh, their tax write-off agenda. Robert McIntyre, the director of the Tax Fairness Group, Citizens for Tax Justice, said, when you put together depreciation on buildings and do it with borrowed money, you get a negative tax rate. You just can't help it. And so in some of the few years where Trump has uh, declared his tax returns, uh, back in the 80s, he was claiming a negative uh, uh, income tax of some $400,000. Uh, and then the, you know, the next uh, available tax return, he was claiming a negative income tax of $3.4 million. So he's basically never paid taxes. Uh, it's only workers who pay taxes, only the little people who do that. So uh, that's the sort of atmosphere that uh, the Trump is uh, operating in. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Dan Rustenkowski, the Democratic chair for the House Ways and Means Committee from 81 to 94, was reportedly once so fed up with the brazen tax welfare for real estate that he threatened to make the whole sector tax exempt which actually would have increased investors' tax bills since they'd no longer be able to write off unlimited losses against traditional income. So this is all going on, this this whole article, which uh, is a blitzkrieg, well worth you uh, tracking down on uh, prospect.org. They're not even looking at the, the role of the community in uh, uh, improving those areas that Trump has invested in to make that land more attractive and from that uh, increase the, the value of, of land prices. Ambrose Bierce in The Devil's Dictionary from way back in 1911, he wrote about land. A part of the Earth's surface considered as property. The theory that land is property subject to private ownership and control is the foundation of modern society and is eminently worthy of the superstructure. Carried to its logical conclusion, it means that some have the right to prevent others from living, for the right to own implies the right exclusively to occupy, and in fact laws of trespass are enacted wherever property and land is recognised. It follows that if the whole area of terra firma is owned by A, B and C, there will be no place for D, E, F and G to be born or born as trespassers to exist. And that is that really uh, nails it, uh, this incredible advantage those who own the earth have over anyone trying to run a business or earn a wage. And it's this distribution of natural opportunities from one generation to the other, from one class to the other, from one industry to another, that is just so important if we're to bind together the social contract of being able to walk home late at night uh, uh, without the worry of someone uh, beating you over the head. Well, it seems that the rights of, of property owners is going to barrel ahead at an increasing rate until the everyday person wakes up and recognises that uh, this age-old story of uh, the battle of location-location must be finally addressed so that we can actually live within an economic democracy, 
not just something where we vote once every four years for uh, largely uh, corrupt politicians who have to sell their ethics out to fund the advertising to support their campaign on what was once known as the public airwaves. And that is the sad thing, that so much of the democratic ethos is taken away bit by bit by this level of rent-seeking, these monopoly rights that are etching away at free speech, etching away at uh, the everyday person's ability to get their word heard, seems only lawyers and insiders uh, seem to uh, be able to have a say these days and tell us what is what. Well, let's uh, keep studying these rules of economic engagement so we can really pull apart uh, this treachery that's unfolding day by day in terms of public policy. Are you working? What kind of work do you do? What do you do for a living? I go to work. What kind of work? Work I don't like. After work, I hate to go. Why do you do with them? I gotta pay the rent. Carry on working. Yes, we'll get jobs and be happy. No, we'll get jobs and pay the rent. We'll get credit cards and be happy. I've never wanted this job. But I'm skipping work. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Today, yeah. And I would bother knowing it's your work tomorrow. Take this job and shove it. Last week's show, uh, the eight unexpected outcomes of Georgia's economics uh, led to a bit of feedback, which was fantastic to hear. And the law of rent is something we have to go further into. So uh, let's have a listen to this interesting video clip by earthsharing.org, our friends from the Shelkenbach Foundation in New York. Why is the rent so high? We often hear real estate agents reciting the mantra, location, location, location. It's true, it costs much more to rent space in Manhattan than it does in a rural area. However, if one listens closely enough, they will also hear the economists chanting, alternatives, alternatives, alternatives. But what do they mean by alternatives? Here's an example. John and Steve are out sailing when a storm blows them off course. Their ship is destroyed and they find themselves marooned on a small island. They soon become hungry. Coconuts are their only viable food source. At first, they both share the best grade of land on the island. Here, they can pick the most coconuts with the least amount of work. After a few days, Steve suddenly proclaims that the best grade of land belongs to him. If John wants to use it, he has to pay Steve rent. Answer this question. John wants the most coconuts possible. He can either work on Steve's land or go to the next best unowned land rent-free. What then will determine the maximum Steve can charge John to use the best grade of land? John's next best alternative will be the deciding factor. The number isn't important, but let's just say John can keep two coconuts rent-free on the next best land. If Steve left John with less than two on the best land, John would promptly go to the next best. Therefore, the rent is determined by the next best alternative. 
Now, what would happen if Steve claimed all of the second best land as well? Of course, this would mean that Steve would be able to charge John more. Again, this is because John's next best alternative would be worse. What would happen if Steve claimed the entire island? If John is left with no other alternative, Steve can forcibly demand as many coconuts as he wants. If Steve owns all the land, he owns John. If John has more coconuts after working harder, attaining more skill, or inventing coconut-picking technology, Steve will simply demand more rent. Steve doesn't need to pick any coconuts himself. He simply has to claim land and charge rent. The less land he leaves to John, the more he can charge. The idea that rent is determined by a rent-free alternative is what economists since David Ricardo have called the law of rent. It is among the most fundamental and firmly established principles of economics. There are many factors that cause rent to increase, but all do so through limiting alternatives. Once again, it's all about alternatives, alternatives, alternatives. Historically, landless peasants fled the high rent and poverty in Europe by settling on other continents. The new landlords on these continents were not able to charge as much rent because there was a vast expanse of quality land that frontiersmen could go to rent-free. In the U.S., people could simply go west. Today, there is no rent-free land left on which a person can earn a decent living, resulting in vastly higher rent. Valuable urban land is wasted as derelict buildings, vacant lots, and expanses of blacktop, making it unavailable for housing and jobs, while also creating sprawl. Wasted land means fewer alternatives and thus higher rent. As the productivity of the economy increases, rent also increases. Just as John's rent rose, the more coconuts he was able to pick. So long as people earn higher wages, market rent increases. For the same reason, purchasing prices and mortgage fees for land also increase. Economists group these related costs together and simply refer to them as rent. This problem of high rent is not restricted to the rich industrialized world. Many countries today were founded on the yearning for land, even at the expense of native peoples. Yet in numerous post-colonial nations, vast expanses of fertile land sit idle while many starve. In some of these countries, a few families own nearly all of the land. The high rent in cities pushes poor people far away from vital services like schools and hospitals. Extreme inequality breeds violence and often incites governments towards radical land redistribution policies that destabilize economies, exacerbating poverty. In the U.S., more people are landowners. As a result, there is less poverty. Yet this does not change the fact that those who don't own land must pay exorbitant fees to those who do. When land is hoarded and wasted, people will pay whatever it costs, for nobody can survive without land. What other alternative do they have? And so one of the, the big points in that animation is just what Ambrose Bierce was talking about, and that is the ability of, of those who own the earth to really own the opportunities that anyone else uh, coming onto this planet can receive. And it's that ability to lock up the land so that there are no alternatives, so that you have to pay the asking price 
you know, rent is almost an entrance fee to life on earth. And th- that's just not the sort of uh, society of, of freedom, of uh, liberty, of all of these grand institutional type uh, slogans that uh, have been plastered across this concept of democracy. Well, when you break it right down to this very raw fact over, you know, who does own the earth and who does get the benefits of the public's hard work, then it just becomes so goddamn obvious that it drives you crazy. <laughs> and I wonder if there are any listeners who have been listening to the show now for years and years and uh, are starting to feel that frustration, seeing this uh, global real estate buffoon in charge of things now. Well, uh, uh, I'm, I'm worried that uh, 50 to 70-year mortgages are going to become the norm and, uh, you know, people like Naomi Klein are still struggling along in two-dimensional economic analysis. It just uh, drives me crazy that uh, even people uh, like her who, you know, I, I, I respect as, a, as one of the analysts of, of our age, and uh, there she is uh, making these broad brush claims uh, against billionaires, against the tech gurus, and... Uh, you know, they're the ones to blame. And it's like, hang on, uh, we've got to look within the billionaire class and say, look, it's those who are benefiting from unearned incomes, from monopoly rights. They're the ones we want to penalize. Those people who are employing thousands upon thousands of people in their tech industries, that's a good thing. You know, they should get some tax breaks. They should be rewarded for all of these productivity enhancing uh, uh, technologies that are being developed. But it's those billionaires who are able to uh, buy up vast railways like Warren Buffett has uh, over the last few years. And now that Trump is uh, pro-coal, pro-improving the transportation networks to get that coal out of uh, some of these uh, mountaintop destructions they're engaged in, uh, uh, these owners of of the railways are going to benefit from that. So why should they make that easy money? Why should our analysis uh, be limited to just corporations? Come on, people, let's get serious. Let's look in a little deeper at how they're making their money, how those tax advantages play out for them, and what can be done so that we support those who employ people uh, whilst penalising those who pollute, penalising those who are predators. And that's what we've got, this world of predatory capitalism, monopoly capitalism, and... We're just going to keep uh, flying this flag until people recognize that we can not only have uh, cheaper, affordable land, we can not only have good green growth rates that support sustainability on the planet, uh, but we can you know, respect those people who do run good businesses. That's what you know, we need to be working towards is how to develop a corporate culture that's not based around these phoenix companies that uh, people can uh, close down the business one day and start it up with a different name, basically uh, uh, without penalty uh, as, a, as a, a trick to avoid paying some of their, their, their previous debts. All right, well, there you go. There's the rant. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening. Check out earthsharing.org.au. Find me on Twitter at Earthsharing. I'm heading down to Perth this week after a bit of a, a restful time. 
Um, thanks so much uh, for helping keep uh, the beloved 3CR Airways alive and well. Don't stop now. <laughs> the breakdown of world finance is that essentially the crooks took over and were promoted on the guise that crime is the free market. Crime is the American way. Crime is what the Washington consensus supports. Uh, yeah.